Welcome to Opera for Everyone on KHOL. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and this is a very special episode of Opera for Everyone, a holiday special. I'm joined today in the studio by Grant. Grant, Opera for Everyone listeners, may you may recall, uh, joined Keeley for those first few episodes of Opera for Everyone. Some of which were actually recorded. A handful of which were actually recorded. And Grant actually joined me for a Handel opera. See, most of them weren't recorded. It's like the early Doctor Who's. If you really dig around in the yeah. archives, you can find it. But the, the BBC just didn't keep those things in the 1950s. And so you got to try and reconstruct them. Who knew? Who knew? But we are listening to Handel right now. And on this very special episode of Opera for Everyone, we are listening to Handel's Messiah, not an opera, but an oratorio composed by Handel. So here's the real question. Is it Messiah or the Messiah? I believe it's Messiah. People Grant, apparently have really strong opinions about this. I didn't know this until a week ago, but uh, it turns out that people have very strong opinions about whether you're supposed to call this the Messiah or just Messiah. Well, or if you're trying to be safe, Handel's Messiah. Just call it Handel's Messiah every time. If and you call no it Handel's you Messiah, you're totally safe. I'm looking at the cover of the CD that we're using here, which, by the way, for those of you who are interested, it's uh, Neville Mariner and the Academy and Chorus of St. Martin in the Fields, and it just says Messiah. So I'm going to go with Messiah. I'm going to go with Handel's Messiah. I'm going to not try Play and get anyone irritated at me, even a little bit. All right. Well, let's listen to the remainder of this opening symphony of the work we're calling Handel's Messiah. This is a crazy piece of music. I think most of us are familiar with it in some extent. Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah, which I'm going to continue calling this piece of music in my further attempt to get, you know, a larger and a larger fence built around the Torah. Trust me, in certain circles that joke kills. So this is, this is a legendary piece of music. What's the legend? The legendary piece of music. Well, I, first of all, we are listening to opera for everyone, but this is not an opera. Handel, however, was primarily a composer of operas. On Opera for Everyone, we have done two Handel operas. Grant, you and I have had great fun doing Tamerlano. That was composed by Handel in 1724. And Keely and I did Rodelinda, both uh, operas by Handel written in London in Italian, because even though Handel was German, he wrote in Italian and he lived most of his career in London. But these were both in the first half of the 18th century. This particular work, this oratorio of his, was written... Is one of the most famous Italian language oratorios. 
this oratorio was written in English. <gasps> yes, indeed. Wow. There's not a lot of stuff we've done on Opera for Everyone written in English, is there? I'm trying to... I'm scratching my head. I'm, this may be the first thing we've actually done where the... Well, there was... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't part of that. <laughs> so, so that's what you need to know, folks, is if you want to get English on Opera for Everyone, it's the days we don't actually do operas. Interesting. Well... Yeah. So what's what's the difference between an opera and an oratorio? That is an excellent question. This is an oratorio. And the difference between an opera and an oratorio is, unlike an opera, an oratorio does not have sets and costumes and people acting out the roles of the characters. While they may be singing the roles of various characters, they aren't acting them out. They're not dressed up like those people's. And we don't have sets and costumes. So basically it's an opera, but they're not trying as hard. Well, I wouldn't put it that way. <laughs> there is drama, but it, it's not acted out drama. It's not costumed. It doesn't necessarily have all of the theatricality. It's very contained. It's minimalistic drama. We're thinking like foreign films in black and white, people smoking cigarettes and staring off into the distance. Mm, probably not smoking cigarettes. Interestingly, in today's world, oratorios, for the most part are performed in sacred settings. We tend to perform oratorios in churches and cathedrals and places like that. And most oratorios were written on sacred topics, even in Handel's day, but they weren't performed in sacred settings. They weren't performed in churches. They were performed in music halls. Handel's Messiah was first performed in a music hall. We'll talk a little bit more about the premiere, but only one performance of Handel's Messiah in Handel's lifetime was performed in a church, in a cathedral. All the rest were in theaters, in music halls. Okay, so what went wrong in Handel's life that had him writing in English and writing oratorios instead of operas? So this was towards the end of his career. I mentioned those dates that we did Tamerlano and Rodolinda just as examples. Handel wrote over 40 operas. All of those preceded, most of those preceded the writing of Messiah. Messiah is premiered in 1742 and not in London. It premiered in Dublin, Ireland. His opera company, Handel's Opera Company in London, had gone bankrupt just a few years earlier, in the late 1730s, 1737 to be exact. And Handel had sort of fallen on hard times. He was certainly a celebrated composer and he was well respected for the successes he had had. But he was kind of getting to be old news and the theaters were not selling out and they weren't really filling up. And, you know, he was he was certain of his own talent and he would joke, oh, well, a theater that's not that full has better acoustics. Ha ha ha. But <laughs> right. <laughs> but it wasn't really wasn't really so wonderful. But one of his great admirers and friends, Charles Jennings, had given him this libretto but not a traditional libretto. It was entirely text taken from the Bible, the text that ultimately becomes Messiah. And he'd given it to him and suggested that he set it to music. And he'd kind of tucked it away and waiting for a time to, to set it to music. And he had that tucked away at a time when he received an invitation from some folks, some society folks in Dublin and said, would you please come to Dublin to put on a charity benefit for us? It was this great moment 
that was great for Dublin and it was great for Handel. Please come because the cream of Dublin society loved these charity concerts. They, they loved to have these concerts to raise money for worthy causes. And Dublin was, was just of a size that they had enough wealthy people that could support these worthy causes and everyone expected to see everyone else of a certain stature in society who had the means to show up and you would notice if the other people weren't there. So it was it was just this perfect, perfect moment where the people supported it. They wanted to have somebody of the stature of Handel and Handel needed them to help revive his career. Handel went before the actual premiere and he would conduct some of his older pieces of music and he would he was just showered with adulation and appreciation and it did more for his own sense of worth not to mention the proceeds that he would receive himself and also raising money for worthy causes the worthy cause in particular for this was it was uh, for people who had been put in prison for debt debtor's prison and they they ended up releasing close to 150 people ultimately from the money raised for from the premiere of Messiah. That's not so bad for an old decaying musician. And he really wasn't an old decaying musician. He just had ceased to be the hottest thing in London. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot of information. (laughs) We're going to get to some music. So this is the first chorus. We can talk later about what the structure is, but this is the first chorus of Handel's Messiah and it adapts a passage from Isaiah 40, as does the, this entire first section, which is a hopeful and uplifting passage about God stepping in to deliver comfort and rescue, originally directed at the people of Israel and gradually directed at the entire world. Oh! 
This is a special edition of Opera for Everyone, where we are listening to Handel's Messiah. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and we are joined today by Grant, who is helping us get through Handel's Messiah, and he's helping us with a lot of these biblical references, because the text from Handel's Messiah is entirely taken from the Bible. Yeah. All scripture. Yeah, every word of it. Courtesy of Charles Jennings, Handel's good friend. What can you tell us about Charles Jennings? Well, Charles Jennings had provided this libretto to Handel, hoping that it would help him and inspire him to write a piece of music that would bring the crowds in. And Handel said, this is good. I'll work on this. It'd probably take me about a year or so. But in fact, Handel when he was focused and when he really wanted to get something done, which often happened, could write quite quickly. And the entire Messiah was composed, it's believed, in about 24 days, a shockingly short period of time, what we today would call hyperfocus. Handel got the work done. Totally remarkable. Sort of an unimaginable amount of work to have accomplished in that time, but... He got it done. And was uh, was Jennings very excited about uh, how the, the rapid clip and, you know, well, the deadline getting met? Well, Jennings was skeptical. He thought, I think this requires a little more of your time and consideration, dear friend, not just dashing it off in a matter of a few weeks. So he was a little concerned that he hadn't given it proper time and attention. Yeah. And it's such disappointing music when you get to listen to it. <laughs> yeah. So when he did hear it, he was, everything turned out okay. So Grant, what part of the Bible or what topic does the next piece of music cover? So the Messiah is a huge epic on a crazy scale. Crazy crazy scale just unimaginable it's sort of it's sort of crazy meaning large a mad thing to have gone into Hmm. just of of wait wait of biblical proportions biblical literally (laughs) biblical proportions going from the beginning to the end of the universe and hitting the highlights along the way and so part of this story is as is a bedrock of christian theology the idea that god works through the people of Israel and particularly through the priests and the prophets who bring this message towards the people who bring this message ultimately to the world. And this next chorus is talking about the purification of the priesthood, the sons of Levi, the Levites, and how God is going to start with this tiny group of people who left Egypt all those many years ago and is eventually going to do something remarkable across the entire world.
to Opera for Everyone. We are listening to Handel's Messiah. Just a word for a moment about the type of music we've been listening to, other than to say it's Baroque and it's an oratorio. Can I just interject here? Yes. Baroque music. Isn't Baroque music great? I was thinking about this the other day. Is it just like... (laughs) This is is not what we plan to say, but go ahead. No, not even a little bit. But okay, it's like (laughs) Baroque music... Mm -hmm. These guys had it figured out. Now, I realize there was obviously something wrong in Baroque music because only when you get to the very end of the Baroque period do you actually start to get classical music that we kept in the repertoire. But, okay. Did you know, by the way, that Bach was born the very same year that Handel was born? I did not know that. Side note. Carry on. I know that they both looked into the same organist job at one point in Germany. Mm. Bach always worked uh, under royal patronage. Handel struck out on his own, moved to London, and, you know. Ended up under royal patronage. Well, his opera company went broke, and he had to go to Dublin to... He didn't get patroned nearly enough. Yeah, not nearly enough. But you were saying about Baroque music? Oh, Baroque music. Baroque music's great, right? The whole idea that they thought that music could just be figured out and that you could know the right answer, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. The certainty about the the sense and the rationality of music, which we kind of have lost ever since. But then you like actually look back at Baroque music and you get stuff like Holly Chorus or, you know, stuff like that that is structured in this incredibly complex, beautiful, symphonic way where... All of these things are layered on top of each other and playing out the melody. And you're like, I, you know, I could, I could stand to listen to the Bachabell's canon another time or two. Well, okay, let's look at, the, <laughs> look at the year, right? Look, take a look at the year. 1742. We're talking about Age of Enlightenment, aren't we? Yes. Age of Reason. Yes. Time period that, for instance creeping up on the founding documents of our very own country. Yeah, no, reason was was big. I mean, reason was big in the 18th century. Yeah. All right. There was, there was a lashback against that, but like there was a they had reason had its moment. Romanticism, is that what you allude to? Of course. Bel canto. Yes, eventually people decided that all that reason was very stuffy and for some reason people don't play a lot of fugues these days, but fugues are great. But we digress. Yeah. What we had intended to say (laughs) was in our playing of the music from Handel's Messiah today on Opera for Everyone, you will notice that we're playing a lot of choral music. There is a lot of choral music that is absolutely beautiful in Handel's Messiah. I think a lot of you, when you might hear a performance of, of the work, oftentimes it's abridged. It's the choral pieces that you will enjoy hearing and i know you're all waiting for that one very famous choral piece 
the Hallelujah Chorus, and we promise we will. We will get to it, and you will love it. But there are pieces which are not choral works in this. We have the recitatives, just like we have in operas, and there are also arias, and we have different soloists. We have a bass, we have a, an alto, we have a soprano, and we have a tenor. And there are also one or two duets that happen here in this oratorio. But for the most part, we have chosen, Grant and I, to play the choral pieces because they are spectacular, heart-stopping, just emotion-pulling. But the piece we're about to play, I think, does a beautiful job of moving seamlessly from one to the next, recitative, aria, and choral work. So, Grant, this piece is called... Yeah, this is sort of one thing. It's sort of three things. It is a set of three in the same pattern that you see throughout the entire piece. And it begins with the prophetic promise in First Isaiah about a virgin conceiving. Now, there are very different Jewish and Christian interpretations, and in fact, that very word virgin is quite contested in the translation. But for our purposes here, it is a prophecy about the coming Christ, and then it moves to this section from Isaiah 40 about the redemption of Jerusalem and the coming glory for Jerusalem and her children.
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone, and today's Opera for Everyone is a special holiday treat, Handel's Messiah. And uh, our next piece is going to be one of these many remarkable choral pieces from Handel's Messiah, and this one is taken from Isaiah chapter 9. Grant, I can't help but notice that a great many of these pieces in this first section here are from Isaiah. Why are all these pieces from Isaiah? Isaiah's great. Tell us more. <laughs> so Isaiah is a is a very complicated uh, and interesting book of the Bible. And I say book, but the truth of the matter is that it's more reasonably divided into at least two, probably three different books, each with their own qualities. Uh, chapter 1 through 39, chapters 40 through 55, and 55 to the completion. And there are they're very, they're very different kinds of works in terms of the mood, in terms of the setting, very much in terms of the time. Uh, there's a major time skip in between chapters 39 and 40, as well as a major tonal shift. And we're straddling both sides of that skip here. You'll have noticed that a bunch of the stuff that I've named chapters of is chapter 40, where that shift happens, it, which is to grossly oversimplify a shift from a negative emphasis to a positive emphasis, from an emphasis on how bad things are going to go because Israel's not following the right path to God's mercy on them in spite of all that. Mm. The part we're about to be listening to, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, is one of the various messianic prophecies in in the uh, Hebrew Bible. Messianic, now, as in Messiah. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, it should be said that this is one of those things where there are you're going to find a lot of different interpretations depending on exactly what religion and denomination you're talking about. This is very much not thought of as a messianic prophecy among non-Christian circles, but within Christian circles, this idea of the government being on the shoulders of a child called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is seen as uh, prefiguring the coming Christ child. And it's part of the story that Handel is telling through music of God's plan to save the world. Oh, 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 
Wonderful. That Marvelous. Was... <laughs> Truly. Welcome back to Handel's Messiah on Opera for Everyone as we listen to this special piece of holiday music. Though I might point out, not initially written for the holiday of Christmas. <gasps> True. I can't believe that. Aren't all the Christmas songs originally written for the holiday of Christmas? This was written for the Easter season. I actually knew that. But. You, I know. I, I know that you knew that. But not every we. It is so associated with the Christmas season. So many Christmas concerts, Christmas celebrations use the Hallelujah Chorus or some portion of Handel's Messiah. But it was uh, originally an Easter oratorio. Yeah. I mean, Christmas has a habit of... Uh jacking the songs from other holidays uh, and uh, and occasions so you know and really anything about snow yeah joy to the world yes. not originally a christmas song that is true <laughs> yeah no christmas is just this all-consuming beast that keeps growing and growing and slowly it takes over thanksgiving and uh-huh. next thing you know trees with decorations trees with decorations up in october Jolly and you're men wearing red wondering <laughs> what in the world has the world come to but no it's always been like this so hey there's i suppose some comfort in that comfort and joy yeah back to the music so here is part of the source of the confusion slash reason why this has been appropriated by christmas is Here is the Christmas story, as told by a soprano. With an angelic voice. With an angelic voice, but she's actually not playing the angel. She's playing the part of the narrator, and she tells you the Christmas story. If you've never heard it before, it's a good story. And she tells you the Christmas story, and then she gets to the part where the angelic chorus chimes in, and I can't imagine what happens then. So the we'll heavenly have to, host. We'll have to we'll have to take a listen and uh, see what the uh, what the host of heaven has to say. Choral music, I'm guessing. Well, you know, could be, could just be a bassoon. You never know. My okay, it's 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 a it's, a it's a it's a choir, but it could be a bassoon. It might be a bassoon in the background somewhere. I haven't looked at the instrumentation. Have you? No, I haven't. Yeah, fair enough. But love, it 
Rejoice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is the righteous Savior, and shall speak peace unto the heathen. I suppose this is time to say you're listening to Opera for Everyone on KHOL, <laughs> lest, lest they think we're giving a sermon. <laughs> yes, we, we, try to, we try to keep it mixed up, but it's, we're, we're doing the, the, the holiday special here. Yes, we are. So, heathen. <laughs> it's not a word we hear every day. Yeah, it's um, this work is based heavily on the King James translation of the Bible. Oh, uh, King James, he's the not he, but his version of the Bible, the one he commissioned, is the one with the poetic language, the "thou shalt nots" and all that. Yeah, the a lot of what people think the Bible sounds like, English speakers anyway, think... It's the way the, God talked, right? The, the way that people think God talked, right, is is the <laughs> King James Bible, the thy and thou and eth and that kind of thing. Uh, and it's it's sort of a, an interesting story, which we shouldn't digress too much into here, but it's the product of this this monarch, King James, James I, James Stuart. Oh, 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 you know, we... Keely and I recently did Roberto Devereux, the latter part of Queen Elizabeth's reign, where we referenced James. Of course, in that opera, she abdicated. <laughs> Not very historical. But James, <laughs> where we talked about the fact that uh, Mary Stuart's son, James I, of the King James Bible, we didn't talk about the Bible, but he becomes the monarch that follows her. She, she of course, being Protestant, and he's Catholic. Yeah, he's, well... 
Yeah, it's <laughs> the the uh, the English church at that time is a, is sort of a, a complicated thing. Eventually, his entire yes. family line ends up getting disinherited from the English throne on the grounds of them being Catholic. Yes, uh, although in many corners of the UK then and in the right corners, you can still find them today. There are people who think that the Stuart line should have continued on. Right. Uh, among them, the writer of the libretto. Ah, you turned up some information that I did not. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, I do know that Handel was a was a staunch Lutheran. Handel was a Lutheran, and in fact, he personally benefited from the fact that the Stuarts weren't in charge because right. it turned out that his patron over in Germany yeah. ended up being king of England because all the people who were much closer to him and you the know, Hanoverians, cases, yeah, English, yeah, mm-hmm. the Hanoverians come come over from Germany because of the disinheriting of uh, all the Catholic monarchs. They recently changed that, by the way, I think. In the last few years, Catholics are allowed to inherit the throne again, but I don't think that the Stuarts are coming back. If you were wondering... We, we the, don't really see that happening, yes. The uh, the, the people who are, who are in favor of the Stuart line have been keeping track uh, of who should have been the King of England for the last few hundred years. And it's, it's the current Duke of Bavaria, if you're curious. But we digress once again. But we digress somewhat. The heathen. Yes, that's a translation of the King James. The word in in Hebrew is actually just nations. This gets trans this word nations. Sorry, nations equals heathen? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, well, and it, the, the verse makes more sense if you read nations, right? He is the righteous Savior, and he shall speak peace unto the nations. Oh, I like that better. Yeah, well, it makes more sense. And it's and it's the, the original sense of it. But we should be clear that the authors here are familiar with that. They know that what is meant by right. speak peace unto the heathen is who's the heathen in the context, right? It's everybody who isn't Jewish at the time of Jesus' birth. Implicitly, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. ancestors of everyone listening to this, right? right. I mean, that's just the, 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 the overwhelming majority and so heathen, we are used to this being a term of derision or insult, but they are counting their own ancestors among the heathen. And part of what is the great news here is that God's word and God's word of peace has been spoken to them and to their ancestors, that it has moved out from the sons of Levi to all the sons of Israel and ultimately to the world. And so that takes us to this universal theme that we find in our next song. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And that, in fact, is the first song of part two of this oratorio. Yes, we move from this kind of introductory thing to actually talking in concrete terms Uh, well, as concrete as a universal story like this can be, about the life of Christ, which forms the substance of the second of the three parts of Handel's Messiah.
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone on KHOL. On today's special edition of Opera for Everyone, we are listening to Handel's Messiah. Which is a wonderful piece of Christmas music. Written for the Easter period. And it's also a wonderful opera. Oratorio. Not opera. No costumes. No scenery. No fancy lighting. So you're telling me that we're doing the Opera for Everyone Christmas episode. Yes. And we got no Christmas and no opera. Well, it does have a long tradition. Is it still of, for everyone at least? It is for everyone. But it does have a long tradition I've been of being that we may performed. be too much like obscure historical fact and absurd literary reference. <laughs> well, it, we, we're trying to make it for everyone. We, we want everyone to enjoy this music. That's hence you, all your comments about Baroque music. I have to confess, the first time I heard all of, or most of, this oratorio, I found it hard to wrap my ears around, hard to truly enjoy, because it, it was a little unfamiliar. It was a little difficult. But truly, after watching some and listening to some of Handel's operas, I found this a little easier to get into and get excited about. But it's, it's an interesting thing, right? That this is right around the cusp of music that we really recognize and music that we don't really recognize. It feels that, familiar and comfortable to us. Yeah, exactly. It, parts of it, you know, like particularly Hallelujah Chorus, right, have just become this burned it no don't give it away don't give it away no spoilers have just gotten burned into our collective societal brains and parts of it seem very alien particularly with the original instrumentation there was originally very little instrumentation only five instruments yes Uh, yes 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 and later on 19 i think within a few decades of of of, uh and handel had a portable organ no joke <laughs> he really did i did not know about the portable he did he organ. had a portable organ <laughs> but yeah it's still like it's, it's right on the on the edge and maybe this is a thing to talk about more later but it's it's right on the edge of classical music as it we is. truly understand it the music's that became the music that became classics and remained continuously in production because after just a few years of this being it, it was it didn't run continuously for the first few years but after that, within four or five years of it being created and performed, this has been in the repertoire. Yeah. Someone's been playing it somewhere every year since that year. And that's kind of a remarkable thing when you think about it. Not it's astounding. Not a lot of yeah. music does that. A bunch of music that happened around this time period and coming up. But yeah, this is right on the, on the cusp uh, where you start to move out of the Baroque period and into what we would really start to recognize as classical music. And it, it truly, it doesn't hurt that it, it became embraced as part of the Christmas tradition. Yes. Thanks for joining us for this first half of Opera for Everyone in our special edition focusing on Handel's Messiah. Please join us for the second half coming right up. See you for the second half. We'll be here. 
Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone here on 89.1 KHOL. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am joined today by Grant for our special edition of Opera for Everyone, this holiday celebration where we're playing Handel's Messiah. Yeah. The recording we are listening to was made in 1995 with the Academy and Chorus of St. Martin in the Fields under the leadership of Sir Neville Mariner and chorus master Laszlo Heltai. Soloists include soprano Ellie Aimling, alto Anna Reynolds, tenor Philip Langridge, and bass Gwyn Howell. Thank you one and all for this exquisite music. And a reminder that this work is not an opera, but an oratorio by that prolific composer of operas, Georg Friedrich Handel. Wow, I would not have dared to try to say that. <laughs> oh, you know. I'm fearless after a couple of semesters of German. I learned a thing about German in the course of researching this. Yeah? Okay, so start with something I did know, which is that the position that the King James Bible has in English language understanding of what the Bible is and literature and our idea of grandiose language, etc., is uh, in German filled by Luther's translation of the Bible into German. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, Martin Luther's translation of the Bible into German fills yes. a similar cultural role. But there's a few distinctions in places where they have to make judgment calls. Like, for instance, there's a reference to the trumpet sounding to signal the, the coming you know, judgment mm-hmm. uh, in the book of Revelation. In the English version, as you may have gotten from what I just said there, it's a trumpet. It's not a trumpet in the... German version. What is it? Luther translated as a trombone. Oh. And so <laughs> when later instrumentations of this were done for German-speaking audiences, they actually added trombones to the Hallelujah Chorus, etc. Oh, how funny. Because it became very important that you had a trombone there because Be- that's the instrument that plays. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> I love tidbits like that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. They, of course, didn't have trumpets or trombones at the time when stuff was written. So, like, you know, who knows what they were on about then. Some mm-hmm. kind of Roman-style horn, but still. Right. It's it's always fascinating the, the decisions people make in translating. Not to get too much into the way that we translate ancient languages, but that's a, that's a thing that's always very interesting, especially where they're using words that don't directly correspond. Or even more confusingly, when they use words that do directly correspond to one of our words, but our word has shifted in meaning in some significant way. Like, we, you guys did Samson and Delilah. Yes. And talked a little bit about the word judge. And oh, right. Probably the best, cleanest translation for uh, judge is a ruler. Mm-hmm. Uh, to judge is to rule and so on and so forth. But in the English language, we think of judges and rulers as being very different things, and we think of ruling as having to do with presiding and having power. And that is a secondary connotation, but the primary sense is of ruling as one does with a ruler or as one does in a case that you are passing judgment or you're showing something to be of a certain size or a certain are level we of craftsmanship, again? et cetera. Yes, but we're trying to make sure that everyone learns at least a little bit of etymology before they go home. Oh. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, just to bring us back to Handel and the Messiah, let's remind ourselves that this particular oratorio debuted in Dublin 
As part of Handel reviving his career, his friend Jennings was the librettist. He didn't write these particular words, but he did compile them as he selected them from the Bible. And Handel, with impressive rapidity, wrote the music to, to put them together to compose the oratorio. And it was the highlight of the social season in Dublin. Uh, the anticipation was great. In fact, when they were selling tickets for this performance that was going to be played in April, the, the premiere of it in April of 1742, the ladies were asked not to wear hooped skirts and the men's were asked not to wear their swords, which they typically would have done, in order to accommodate all the people who wanted to fit into the music hall. They fit an extra hundred people in that way. See, I saw a thing once where that happened, and then the Phantom shows up with a sword, and nobody's got a sword, and the guy has to, like, go run out to his oh, car and get the sword swords. from his thing. They weren't real, you know. <laughs> they were ceremonial. To go pop open his and trunk what, and, and see where he buried the sword, and it was underneath all the Cheetos. Yeah, exactly. I... <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. And there were other reasons that people wanted to go. I mean, Handel was the main draw, but apparently the alto in the, who was singing the, the solo part of the alto, the soloist was quite an intriguing woman. She was involved in some sort of scandal. I can't remember if it was an affair or a messy divorce, but she was a bit of a... Is she the one who ran away to India? I'm not sure about that. One but, of one of the one of the soloists in this ended up like running away to India and performing it there with a man who wasn't her husband. Anyways, like, I, I well, she actually did. This woman did actually perform, but people were curious to see a woman who had not played by the society's norms. And I wanted to make sure to bring that up because the song that we're going to hear next, there's well, we'll play the song, but then I want to just let you all know that. There's a particular preacher in the audience who was so moved by her that he uh, he wants to grant her absolution. He apparently leapt up in the middle of the performance mm-hmm. and said, Woman, for this be all thy sins forgiven thee. Which is really very generous of him, I suppose. It sounds very King James to me. <laughs> I, it does. That's how God talks, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, I said we were going to wait till the end, but I, we didn't. Shall we play her song? Excellent. Let's. Let's see what she got all her sins forgiven by this very strange and rather condescending man. I was going to say, yes, rather condescending. Rejected of men 
That's a beautiful piece. It also, you'll notice, brings our tone down quite a bit. It's not nearly as uplifting as what we've heard so far. The title says it all. He was despised. And there is, of course, an irony to our friend, the Reverend Jack Dempsey, a person with a substantial amount of power and privilege in his society, looking at the performer on stage, Uh, in an age when to be a performer on stage was not necessarily to be a person of the greatest repute. To look down and to condescend to this person and to uh, treat them ill from one's position of power, although I suppose there's sort of a paternalistic... Anyway, like, there's... He was overwhelmed by the emotion. He was overwhelmed by the emotion, but the overwhelmed by the emotion seems to have pushed him in a better direction than his default state, which was to think, wow, this woman has a lot of sins. There's an irony to that That's the glory of the music, isn't it? There's an irony to that being over the whole bit about how Jesus was mistreated by the establishment, in fact, particularly religious establishment, of Mm. his day. So this is what this is about. Launching us into the passion narrative, talking about the ways that Jesus was mistreated, was hit, and did not hide his face from shame and spitting, which is, you know, pretty rough. And the reason why all of this happens and why all of this is necessary is described in the next chorus we're going to listen to. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Oh, we 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone here on 89.1 KHOL. On today's program, we are listening to Handel's Messiah. I'm Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Grant, who's talking us through this wonderful oratorio based on different passages from the Bible. Yeah, it's based on this huge sweep of Christian theology. You sometimes see in modern churches or uh, even just non-church choral settings, you'll see something like Lessons and Carols, where they do little bits from the Bible and Christmas songs interspersed. This is sort of that, except the bits from the Bible are the Christmas songs. Yeah. Except that it's not just a Christmas thing. It's anyway, that's... Yes, as we said, it started out as, as an Easter oratorio, or it was presented in Easter. The story comes in for a certain amount of theological criticism. And it comes in for theological criticism kind of on the grounds of how non-individual it is. What do you mean by that? It's this huge sweeping scope of the universe and an understanding of how God works in the universe and how humans relate to God and how we sin and fall short. There's not a lot about individual people other than Jesus, and even Jesus' life is kind of in brief, except for the depiction of the passion narrative. The response to this, of course, is that it's using the Bible, and the Bible is not as individualistic, perhaps, as some of our modern pop cultural understandings of Christianity are. Hmm. But this right here, what we just listened to, is probably as individualistic as it gets, that talking about the sins that we all commit, and The proof of the sins that humanity commits is that God comes to humanity and humanity treats God pretty poorly. Right. (laughs) The incarnation shows up and says, wouldn't it be, you know, it's a quote from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. (laughs) 2,000 years after a man was hung on a tree for saying, wouldn't it be nice if we all got along? I mean, it's an oversimplification, but one can see the point there. And so... Jesus has come into a violent and cruel world. And the next set of pieces are about what that violent and cruel world does, which is to say that it tortures and ultimately kills him. And it's been noted that the actual death of Christ is passed over in a flash. We're we're not even going to bother to play it because it's in one of the recitatives as like a throwaway line. Wow, that's Uh, interesting. It's, but that's not the point, right? That's not, not the, point the point of this oratorio. Well, you'll notice that in most Christian celebration, uh, Good Friday is a secondary holiday. That's, that's true. It's all about Easter. And so we start to get towards the promise of Easter with the next piece we're going to play, Lift Up Your Heads, O Ye Gates, which is from the Psalms. And it is taking this, this motif from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, to talk about the Lord triumphant. Christ not as simply suffering and dying, but suffering and dying to triumph over the forces of evil. I always think of, there's this, this wonderful artistic motif you find in a lot of Eastern Orthodox art of Jesus breaking into hell and setting the people free. Ooh. Oftentimes, you know, grabbing Adam and grabbing Eve by the hand and saying, like, jailbreak, let's, let's get out of here. <laughs> oh, that's great. And it's a, it's, a, it's a great imagery for what it is to have 
that which is greater and beyond us break us out of whatever the messes and ruts and sins that we uh, we find ourselves in. And so here is the triumphant chorus. Not quite triumphant. It's here we're on the promise of escape. And uh, I feel like we're we're building to something and glorious. We may be building to something glorious. Anyway, here is lift up your heads, O ye gates. jumping up octaves entirely in a single bound kind of choral music. That sounds like something. I've heard that somewhere before. Hmm. I can't imagine where. Anyway, it probably doesn't matter. <laughs> so before before we get to our, our climactic piece here. Did I ever tell you I sang in chorus many decades ago? What did you do in chorus? Whatever they told me to do. I was an alto. You were an alto. 
Mm. Were you a first alto or a second alto? I wasn't in that kind of chorus. <laughs> one kind of alto in my chorus. <laughs> uh, I broke the recording software with that laugh yeah. there. <laughs> Although I, um, I was told if I was in a proper choir, I'd have been a mezzo-soprano. I like that sound better. Okay, well, there you go. I have no idea. Last time I sang in a choir that was telling me what my voice was, I hadn't yet hit puberty, and I'm pretty sure I sang a desk camp part. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm, I mean, the anticipation, I can't wait to get to, you know, the you-know-what chorus. Okay, so 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 let's, let's keep this rolling. Because I, so, I once, you know, sang, well, more than once sang, and every time... We all get to jump up out of our seats and sing it. And there's and there's a lot to be said there about the story and everything else. But I okay, think, let's I think get let's, there. Let's get there. So, Come on. So first, first, we got to do this uh, this beautiful duet. Okay, so right. in the story, duets. right? I like duets. We've just done this this triumphant expectation, ultimately realization of Easter, of the resurrection. Death has been defeated. Fear has been defeated. Hatred has been defeated. Though that's Christ, worth some triumphal singing. That's isn't worth it? some triumphal singing. Mm-hmm. You know, though humanity has shown itself not able to fix itself on its own. No, God cares and works to save humanity. So the good news of this is to go out to all the world, and that is the gospel of peace. And here is a duet of the sending out of the gospel of peace.
great. That's spectacular. When you hear great tidings, I, you never hear the word tidings except at Christmas time, <laughs> right? <laughs> tidings of joy. Well, it's the thing with the liturgical language, right? The language of ceremonies, whether they're religious or secular, it's the language that keeps going. It's, it's interesting, the certain words that get used in liturgical contexts or even stock phrases, right? right. The word avert. Think of the things you avert. Your eyes. And catastrophe. Those are the only two things you avert. Oh, that's interesting. You're right. right? Like nothing, nothing else. Disaster, right? But like that's catastrophe. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's mm. these, these old ideas get bottled up. And that's why you find these very interesting languages like Sanskrit or Hebrew or Arabic that preserve these deep old parts, uh, ancient Greek, deep old parts of culture right uh, that can fade away so easily but we are building anticipation do you notice how intensely right this is a yes this is a piece of music that's designed to be listened to more than once because yes, yes. that 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 ratcheting up of the rapid repetition yes they're they're getting you ready and we're going to play this next segment all in one piece but what do you think we should say about the Hallelujah Chorus before we launch into the run-up and then the chorus itself? Because you can't just launch into the chorus. You have to get the context. I mean, I suppose I should say it from a narrative point of view. From a narrative point of view, we're going out, we're spreading the gospel of peace, and who stands against the gospel of peace? It's the kings of the world. The kings of the world who say, no, we will never give up our power. Too much is asked. The gospel demands that they are kind to the poor, and that is a great deal of effort if you are a king. And the gospel demands that they are humble, and that is a great deal of trouble if you are a king. Hmm. And the gospel demands that they are peaceful, and that is simply unfeasible for a king. Hmm. And so the kings of the earth rise up to oppose the gospel, and that's what we are going to see next in a aria. Can you guess what vocal part sings the aria about the kings of the earth rising up? Bass. It's a bass. You got bass. it. You know you know your operatic conventions. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so a bass sings about how the kings of the earth are going to go take on God. And the chorus breaks in here. And the chorus is, is actually delightfully ambiguous. This is, this is taken from a psalm. And in the psalm, it's the context of what the chorus says. The, the chorus says, let us break their bonds asunder and cast their yokes from us. In the original context of the psalm, that's being said by the kings. The kings are saying, oh. we're going to break the bonds of the Lord and his anointed. Yes. Uh, anointed, by the way, is Messiah. Anointed. Messiah means anointed, which is equivalent to the word Christ in Greek, but that's a whole other linguistic note. But here, because a different voice is singing it, because it's the chorus singing it to this bass in the role of the kings, yes. there's this response to the kings. We're going to break their bonds asunder. There's this political subversive thing. Interesting. And, and, and are you getting back to the comment about Jennings? Uh, perhaps. Yes, uh, and his concerns about who the king is. Yes, and, and in fact, there's a story of what the royal reaction to this bit was, where it says, the kings of the earth rise up. Well, okay, with the Hallelujah Chorus. The Hallelujah Chorus, which comes a little, just a little bit after. Just the a little bit, bit after this. Well, there is a story when this oratorio finally makes it to London, which is about a year after its premiere in Dublin. 
Handel finally returns to London. It plays in London. It doesn't have quite the rapturous reception, but and because it's highly criticized, he'd even have to change the title, by the way. He can't call it Messiah. That's, it's, it's too heavily criticized by the church. They just have to call it a sacred oratorio. But in spite of the criticism that the clergy gives this oratorio, the king does attend. So it's getting that much approval. And when this hallelujah chorus starts with all its triumphal sounds, the king jumps up, leaps up to his feet. Well, you all know when the king gets on his feet, no one else can remain seated. So the entire audience gets up to their feet and everyone stands through the hallelujah chorus. And from that time forward, that has been the tradition. Everyone stands always for the hallelujah chorus. Which is funny when you think about it, right? The bit about kings rising up and then the king literally rises up. Yes, well, I mean, the people who want to be just a little cynical say, well, the king was a little confused. He thought maybe they were starting the national anthem, but, <laughs> you know, I don't really I buy don't know. I've, I've heard the British national anthem. It doesn't go like that. No, <laughs> really don't. I don't. I don't buy that argument. But so, I, I, you know, I had to say it because it's said. Yeah. In any event, so we have this this uh, this challenge to the gospel of peace mm-hmm. from the kings of the earth. Yes. And they rage against God and God's plan. And there is a contest. But again, the contest is almost implicit. Just as with the passion, the actual action is skipped over quickly because what matters is the result. And well, the result is spectacular.
Wow. Yeah. No, that's just, I mean, <laughs> there, there is a point at which all of our words are going to be inconsequential. I will say that in this context and thinking about it the way that I've been thinking about it, I am more aware of this sort of, it's not exactly political because I'm not entirely certain that Handel was trying to make any political point himself. But he wasn't the librettist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the the move from let us break their bonds asunder. And then the very next line is he that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. Right. Keeping them as the kings. Mm-hmm. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. And then and then the triumph of the hallelujah chorus that God reigns the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our lord and his christ and he shall reign forever and ever right the ultimate rejection of all temporal earthly power that's that's something that's very powerful i mean it's kind of you know the opposite to some extent of some of the ways that we do regard national anthems it's interesting this is a thing we stand for yes can you talk to us about this word, Alleluia? Uh, yeah, well, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good. Hallelujah <laughs> uh, uh, is, uh, is, is Hebrew in origin. It actually shows up in a few places in the Greek New Testament as well. It's one of the handful of words from Hebrew and Aramaic that make their way transliterated rather than translated into oh. the Greek New Testament. And that's part of, I mean, it's a little more than this, but it's part of why you see it without the H in the front sometimes is Greek only kind of does H's, right. uh, really only when they feel like it. H isn't actually a letter, it's a breathing mark in Greek. Anyway, not to get into that too much, but... Hallelujah, hallelujah, yeah. Yeah, the H-L-L, mm-hmm. uh, that root, all, all Semitic languages, including Hebrew, are based off of three-letter roots. The H-L-L root there is to praise, and like hail all hail no uh not cognate no sorry okay <laughs> carry on <laughs> it's it's to to praise and yah is one of the names one finds in the hebrew bible referring to god it's like uh, alleluia at the end yeah the yah there is like, the praise same god yeah, the same is the same Yah that you find on the end of, of various Hebrew names, Elijah, Eliyahu. So Hallelujah is like praise the Lord. Yes, the Lord is the the full name, which I'm not going to say on radio, of the God of the uh, Hebrew Bible. Begins with a Yah and and continues on from there, and is oftentimes people try to avoid saying it uh, out of respect and deference. And in time, people came up with various things. And one of the ones they used is my Lord or Adonai. That became the standard way of getting around saying this four-letter name, the Tetragrammaton. And Lord became, Lord is, by the way, what Adonai means, my Lord. And so people started using Lord to mean 
Adonai, and people use that in place of this original Hebrew phrase. I'm going oh, way... Wow, I had no idea what I was asking. Way I di- just thought about <laughs> You could have just said, yes, it means praise the Lord, and I would have said, thanks. Yes, but but the, yeah, there's it's this interesting thing about how the, the names get constructed and how people try to avoid blaspheming even by accident, by not just following the Torah, but in fact building a fence around the Torah so that you don't tread on one of the commandments even accidentally. Thank you for that. Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, the Hallelujah Chorus is the final piece of part two of the three-part oratorio. Are we going to get to do a dash for the finish? I think we're going to we're going to hop, skip and jump to the finish. (laughs) No, we were never really planning on giving a full treatment to part three. Part three is much shorter than the first two parts, and it has a more limited subject. Part one is about prophecy and about Christ coming into the world. Part two is about Christ's life and triumph over the powers of the world, both the powers of death and the political powers. Part three is about what all the rest of us have to do afterwards. Hmm. And, you know, that's the one of the tricky questions in Christian theology is if death and evil have been defeated, why does it seem like death and evil are still so very much with us as in fact they are? And so this next bit is composed of talking about the various ways that we live in a world where sin we believe is defeated in some cosmic sense but still lingers, still lashes out, still hurts, still destroys. And all of this leads us up to a magnificent chorus. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, because that's what the the traditional answer anyway is, is that the way that we deal with the world is we look at Christ who dealt with the world in all of its horror, as we do, and dealt with it with a faith and a conviction that can only be aspired to. And so that is the idea in Christian theology, and there are echoes of it in the theologies of many other religions, but this is the final piece of Handel's Messiah, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And I must say it has one of the most thorough amens that I have ever heard in song at the end. Well, if you're going to tell the story of the universe, that amen at the end better be magnificent. And it is. So enjoy this last piece and enjoy that final amen.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright, joined today by Grant. And Grant, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me in this exploration of Handel's most famous oratorio, Messiah. I couldn't have done it without you. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah. Opera for Everyone also has shows on operas by Handel, episode numbers 30, 40, 57, and 69 to be specific, as well as works by many other composers. Please tune in each Sunday morning from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Mountain Time, 89.1 KHOL, Jackson, Wyoming, or subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. You can find all of our shows there. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story, and a story set to music, even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable, because we believe Opera is for everyone.